Sometimes Christians have been characterized by being so heavenly minded, they aren't of any earthly good. Have you ever heard that phrase? Maybe you've even thought it yourself. I know I have. Basically, that's saying Christians can be so focused on spiritual matters as they define it. They aren't concerned with real life. And I think this is a fair criticism. Take a random Christian and a random person who's not a Christian. How different are they spending their money? Do their marriages look different? Do their sexual ethics look different? Those are real life things. Whether you're a Christian or not, everyone, when it comes to matters of spirituality, of faith, we tend not to let it intrude on real life matters. Of course, in all other aspects of our life, we like the real world. If you were to not get paid one month and your boss tells you, oh, well, it's a spiritual paycheck, you wouldn't be too happy. Because we assume spiritual doesn't mean real. If you owned a car, someone else stole it and said, oh, well, I own this car spiritually. Nobody's going to believe that. It sounds crazy. It's just as crazy in the reverse, though. To pray to an all-powerful God and have it not touch your money, your possessions, your relationships, there'd be a problem. Someone would rightly wonder, looking at you, if you have a faith that doesn't connect with the real world. And what good is that? What good is that faith? Jesus helps us align these things. Align our faith in the world the way we ought to. And he entered our real life. Because Jesus entered our real life, we can have a real faith. Real faith is a faith that matters, that touches everyday parts of our lives. And this section in Colossians, which we've just read, is about real faith in real life. It means we're going to talk about some real things. Suffering, learning, hard work, and prayer. So first, suffering. We get to real life real quick in this passage. In the same breath of talking about this grand vision of Jesus, Paul talks about suffering. And not in general, but a suffering that's very specific for him. Let's have a look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Before he says suffering, though, he talks about rejoicing. You can imagine a conversation. Oh, yeah, I'm really joyful right now. Oh, yeah, Paul, what's making you joyful? I'm suffering for you. Um, Why is Paul filled with joy in difficult circumstances? It's worth clarifying he's not rejoicing because of pain. This isn't some sort of weird spiritual thing. N.T. Wright says that suffering is regarded as evidence that the sufferers really are God's new people. Jesus, in fact, promised his followers suffering. Suffering is proof that you are one of Jesus' followers. Paul doesn't just rejoice in the midst of suffering, despite suffering, kind of a grin and bear it thing. No, Paul rejoices in the fact sufferings are here. It's proof he's following Jesus. It's also worth mentioning this isn't just random suffering or suffering that comes from consequences of our sin. Like if you you punch someone in the face and they punch you back, you can't be like, oh, I'm suffering because of Jesus now. No, suffering because you're an idiot. Paul says he's suffering for them, suffering for something else outside of him. He's suffering for a church. 
It's actually a church he's not visited. He's not even met these people. But Paul is putting himself out, suffering for them. We don't know specific thing what he's talking about when he says suffering, but we can trust that he probably is. Ultimately, a call to leadership, what Paul's doing here, is a call to suffer. All leaders, now if they are servant leaders, as Paul mentions, verse 25, I have become its servant. Those leaders will suffer for the people that they are leading. When someone's shooting arrows, the leaders take the arrows first. When the people are hungry, the leaders will eat last. Because real leadership, servant leadership, is ultimately following Jesus, which means that a leader's model is Jesus. Jesus suffered and died for us. And likewise, we reflect that way of living and gladly suffer for others' sake. If you are a leader here in the room, here watching online this morning, I want to encourage you in this. Your job is to suffer for the sake of your people. And whoever your people are, that might be your family, might be people who report to you at work, your missional community, your church. A call to leadership is a call to suffer. Now, living in this way, Paul and other servant leaders who follow his example fill what is still lacking in Christ's suffering. Hold up a moment. That's a strange phrase, isn't it? Is it weird to think that Jesus' suffering wasn't complete? The thing is, Jesus' suffering wasn't complete on the cross. Jesus' sufferings by themselves are incomplete. And our sufferings, following that example, for righteous sake, help complete it. If Jesus suffered, no one takes his example. No one puts themselves in suffering. What did Jesus suffer for? And this is where it might seem abstract. Everyone who followed Jesus is the body, part of the body of Christ. But it's not abstract. It's real. It's true. It's real faith in real life. Because when you follow Jesus, you become part of his body in a spiritual and also very real sense. Jesus is the head of the church. And we, as the members of the church, get to be made into his body. We are connected to each other and to Jesus. Why would anyone live this way, the way Paul's describing? For Paul, it's the sake of the church. It's the sake of that body. It says, for the sake of his body, which is the church. That's what drives Paul to this suffering. It's worth it when it's for the church. It's worth also mentioning that we don't tend to like suffering, but that's because suffering isn't worth it when our lives are about ourselves. It's not worth it when we aren't part of the body that is the church. It's about the people here, people in this room joining us online, people who are part of this particular local church. That's why we suffer in leadership for that. Real faith in real life necessarily includes suffering for the sake of the people you see next to you. You can look around the room if you want. Real faith in real life is about the local church. And if you're a Christian today, whether here, whether online, and you're not part of a local church, I'm sad to say you're missing out. You're missing out on the way Jesus has called us to live. He calls us to live as a family. Not as an idea of a family, but as an actual family. Relation together. Ideas, ideologies are easily dropped when times get tough, when things get in the way. But families stay together and suffer together. Real faith in real life means suffering. And that will mean to suffer for each other's sake at times. Real faith in real life also means learning. 
learning about Jesus. In verse 28, Paul says, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. He says teaching here. Teaching and learning go hand in hand, don't they? Jesus is the who Paul talks about, who Paul teaches on, preaches on, warns people in the name of. And Paul is concerned with Jesus first of all. Paul isn't concerned first with alleviating pain, not first in dealing with current events or first in making sure everyone's happy. Paul cares about those things, of course. But the first thing comes Jesus. Because Paul is about making disciples of Jesus. That's what he's doing. And maybe we think, of course, well, he's Paul, isn't he? That's, that's his job. He's pretty good at it. But it's also what we should all be about. We're a church, people who follow Jesus. And Jesus left the earth and said, make disciples wherever you go. That's the mission of the church, to make disciples. This is impossible outside of knowing the word, what it says in the Bible. When we open the Bible, God opens his mouth. If we try and keep God's mouth shut, what kind of disciples are we making? The question isn't if we're making disciples. Ultimately, we're always making disciples. Anytime we give advice, anytime we model a behavior, anytime anyone is looking at us, listening to us, we're making disciples. The question is, who are we making disciples of? Are we making disciples of ourselves, of our celebrities, the people we look up to? Are we making disciples of our ideologies, the ideas that we have about what the good life is? Are we more concerned that our children have a good education and a good career than that they know Jesus? Whether you're married or not, are we more concerned about finding a partner to complete us than finding Jesus in real life? If you're honest, does your spiritual life lag behind your professional life, behind your career? The only hope we have for ourselves to be full-form disciples or for others who we are discipling is to be lifetime learners of what it says in the Bible. We can't proclaim Christ if we don't know what's in the Bible. We can't warn people properly if we don't know what's in the Bible. We can't teach others in our lives if we don't know what's in the Bible. And the reason Paul gives in this passage, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ, it comes back to the church. Everyone needs everyone else. We all need to be learning so we can all grow in maturity. And again, to leaders, especially leaders in the church, you have an extra dose of responsibility to be presenting others as mature in Christ as well. Real faith in real life is rooted in a real community, the local church. And it's in this context of relationships that we can learn together. Of suffering, learning, and now uncompromising hard work. It's a fun passage, isn't it? In verse 29, Paul says that he strenuously contends with all the energy. He also says it in verse 1, how hard I am contending for you. Here Paul is saying, I am struggling to do this with all the energy Jesus gives me. Please don't believe this sort of pseudo-Christian pop psychology that tells you the Christian life is easy, or even that it should be easy if you're just doing it right. 
It was a struggle for Paul. He says so himself multiple times. And if you're doing it right, it will be a struggle for you. But do remember that struggle isn't in your own power. You don't have to look within, steal yourself, grit your teeth and go. The reason Paul can work hard is because he says, all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. You've been given so much in Jesus. The thing is, it's not just for you. That's yet another problem with not being involved in a local church. The opportunities are maybe missing. Because all you've been given, your gifts, your resources, your presence, who you are, is to be poured out. There's one thing I could say to anyone with maturity in Christ, is to pour it out. Pour out these gifts. And it's not always easy to pour it out. Your instincts, my instincts, will say no. Self-preservation is the goal. Comfort is the goal. I've got to make sure I'm all right. Jesus calls us to something more. To dedicate our lives to each other so that we suffer for each other. Learn together. Go through the hard work of pouring it out for each other. Now on hearing that, you might be concerned about burning out. We hear the word burnout a lot uh, in, in various areas of culture these days, especially around the workplace. I want to clarify, this isn't a call to burn out. But why isn't it? I'm telling you to just work really hard. Because when you're working for Jesus, the strength you're doing it from is going to be given to you by him. Now the reason you can burn out is that when you're pouring out, like I've suggested, pouring things out, well, there can end up being nothing left. If you're pouring out constantly, eventually the well runs dry. That means to continue day after day pouring it out for others, you need filling up yourself. That means being filled with the Holy Spirit. It means being filled by reading God's word in the Bible. It means being filled by being in community with Christian family. And also consider the work you're doing. Jesus' work can be hard, but he will also give you the strength. If you're working ultimately for yourself, for your glory, making disciples of how great you are, don't expect you won't burn out then. But the ability or even opportunity to work hard in the cause of something you love, of something you're truly passionate about, is a wonderful thing. It is wonderful. That doesn't mean it isn't still hard, but pour it out with all the energy that Jesus is right now powerfully working in you. It's a sad fact that some Christians may never realize how powerful Jesus is because they refuse to rely on him, refuse to do that hard work. But remember the goal of this work. It's not to make people happy, but to help people reach maturity. Maturity requires us to walk through times and face things that aren't happy. Don't believe the hype that says all parts of your life should always be awesome, and if not, you're doing something wrong. That is not the message of the cross. For the sake of the church, pour it out with all the energy Christ powerfully works in you. We talked about suffering, learning, hard work, and now hopefully we can see that the most important thing underpinning these is prayer. Paul says he's contending for the church and has said it isn't easy going, it's hard work. 
But I've also said Paul isn't there. He's not with them. The people he's contending for, some of them, he's not even met. How do you contend for someone who's far away, someone you've not met in person? We do that through prayer. We already saw a few weeks ago in verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Through prayer is how Paul can pastor with what is effectively social distancing. It's how Paul can lead people, even if they're not in person. Maybe they're having to join online. Maybe not in Paul's time. But as he puts it in verse 5, he can be absent in body but present in spirit. I don't know if any of us will have understood that phrase any more than we can do now after this last year. Absent in body, present in spirit. Don't we want to be present in spirit for each other? But again, it's not wishful thinking. This isn't just some motivational poster that Paul's got stuck up on his wall that he's looking at. This is something that is more than thinking good thoughts. He's praying, he's contending with God on their behalf. And he tells us the goal of it. It's all about the sake of the local church. And Paul explains that in chapter 2. He says, My goal is they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so they may have the full riches of complete understanding. It's quite a chunky saying, so let's break it down a little bit. Encourage in heart. This is something internal to people. Uh, encourage means to have someone put courage into you. And that requires a relationship. God gives us courage. But often he does that through other people, people close to us, people in relationship with us. Whether that's the church, mission community, Christian friends. We have courage to give others. Others need it. And others will have courage to give you as well. He says, united in love. This is a bit more external. The message translation describes this as woven into a tapestry of love. It's a quite poetic phrase, but it means a thick connection. This isn't a little string linking two things. It's detailed. It's deep. And there are many things we could be united around. We united around our love of politics, our love of family, our love of sport, even our love of community itself. But in all those areas, we have differences too. And it's easy for our differences to divide us. And added to that, each one of us, we all bring our own kind of brokenness with us wherever we go. Relational brokenness, sexual brokenness, greed, comfort, work as a religion. Every part of our brokenness brings with it the possibility of division as well. But if we surrender to God's love, that is what unites us. It's what gives us hope for unity with diversity. Surrendering to God's love is what unites people from all kinds of backgrounds, different politics, different ethnicities, city and united supporters. Surrendering to God's love not only unites people from different backgrounds, it also unites people in and through their brokenness. Paul prays this church would understand the whole word, not just the parts of the Bible that are comfortable, the parts that we kind of agreed with before we started reading it, but the parts that we wish we hadn't read, the parts where, if we're honest, we kind of wish weren't in there, we don't want to believe them. But getting to know the whole Bible is getting to know the whole of God. The whole God gives us this full riches of complete understanding. 
So we get to know Jesus. And again, that's the goal of this whole thing. It's what Paul's praying about, getting to know Jesus. So when we pray, we can take a page from Paul's book in this. Pray specifically for someone to be encouraged, united, and understand the whole Bible. And I mean, pick someone and pray for them by name. If we aren't praying this, we shouldn't expect these results. God wants us to ask him in these things. As Paul says in verse 4, there exist arguments that sound good on the outside. They don't contain the truth. In fact, they contain deception. And that's something, let's not lie, that anyone is susceptible to. Fine-sounding arguments. For example, isn't life about doing what I want, like ultimate freedom? I think it's applied to money, to sex, to our time. And in fact, anyone or anything that says different, the Bible, the church, our friends, is holding me back from being my true self, and they're put aside, cast away. Another fine-sounding argument that can deceive. Jesus was a good teacher, but he's not God. You can't say Jesus was only a good teacher when he taught that he was God. Jesus didn't say, do good, get better. He said, come to me. That is our only chance at getting better. Final fine-sounding argument is you can't trust the Bible. It was written so long ago, so many different authors, different versions of it everywhere. In fact, there's no other text that's so rigorously tested. It's not only held up under that testing, but it's shone under that testing, like the Bible. The biblical documents are 10 times, in some cases more than 100 times, more reliable than other texts we have from that time. And whenever we discover new sources of old documents, like really old copies, they continue to add, build up its reliability. In fact, there hasn't been discoveries under this science, this academic research, that has called into question the reliability of what it says in the Bible. Let's briefly look back at these four things. Suffering, learning, hard work, prayer. Paul, in the last verse of this passage, says he longs to delight in seeing how your faith is disciplined and firm. Now, these are military-type terms, similar to a well-ordered army, consistent, steadfast. Ultimately, in these four areas of our lives, if there isn't an order, there isn't some kind of plan or discipline, we won't grow. It requires discipline. Discipline to suffer for others, to continue learning, to do hard things, and to pray. You don't tend to find yourself accidentally stumbling into doing those things well. You don't drift there. Without structure, without intentionality, we have a shallow faith. And that's a faith that doesn't connect with our real lives. This doesn't mean you have to be top-notch at everything. It doesn't mean you have to plan in some way. And that's different for everyone. I can't give a blueprint for this. But it doesn't mean you'll have to do things you don't initially want to do. And then you might be saying, well, you've given me four things, suffering, learning, hard work, prayer. Which should I do? Ask God to choose one to bring to your mind just now. How can you grow even just a little, in that area. What's the next small step you can take? How could you grow more firm, be more disciplined? Give some examples that might help. For suffering, who in your life has a burden 
you can help take on. Now, you aren't Jesus. It's not your job to remove that burden from them. But maybe you can help someone else carry it. If you want to grow in reading the Bible, learning more about God, maybe text a friend to pray for you to do so. Ask them to check up. How's your Bible reading going? What have you been reading lately? What's God been talking to you about? With hard work, for those in mission communities, where can you pour out your gifts on other people in your community? Do you see fellow members of your mission community as your family? And for prayer, many Christians don't pray because they just don't plan to pray. Set an alarm for yourself. Again, get someone else to check in on you. How's it going? This isn't about sort of rigorous, vicious discipline, arguing with each other about, oh, I don't pray enough. But it's saying, help me. I need help from my community to do these things more. And when you're praying for someone, maybe tell them, because that can encourage them to pray in response. And these are just some examples. Take some time, rest of this service, when we take communion together, when you're walking home, to have a think where you can grow. Finally, I'm going to suggest something dangerous. When you're praying, ask God, what's next? What's his plan for you? Where's he going to take you next? In all these things, don't be so spiritual you forget. These words are here to root your real faith in the real world. Christians all the time get a bad reputation maybe rightfully so, for being so heavenly-minded they are of no earthly good. But there is nothing more revolutionary than surrendering yourself to Jesus and therefore to join his body in the local church. Jesus was rooted in real life with real people. He wasn't super spiritual that he didn't think about the basic everyday aspects of life. It was real life when Jesus suffered for us. It was a real cross. He died a real death. Jesus spoke real words for us to learn from. He went through hard work in the real world. And even going to the cross was something he wanted taken from him. But he continued. And Jesus prays for us even now in our real life. You can't have a deep faith in Jesus without your faith coming into contact with the real world. Our faith should be as real as the wood that made his cross. Our faith should be as real as the nails that held him up. Our faith should be as real as the fish he cut with his disciples when he rose again. Because Jesus entered our real life, we can have real faith. Real faith is a faith that matters, that touches on everyday parts of our life. Colossians is about walking with Jesus in all of life. So let's ask God, what's next?